But with that vision in mind, with those thoughts in mind, let's think carefully together about Jesus' words to us here. As we investigate our text this morning, we will discover that King Jesus sends us into the world to shine forth his glory, and so we must not shrink back from the task, but intentionally live as members of his kingdom. Jesus sends us into the world to shine forth his glory, and so we must not shrink back from the task, but intentionally live as members of his kingdom. And so in order for us to grasp this life-transforming reality this morning, we will first look at who we are as the light, and then ask how we are to be the light. And finally, we will address the heart issue that keeps us from being the light. So first, in order to understand who Jesus says we are as the light, we have to put a pin in Matthew 5.14 and zoom out a little bit for some context. Throughout the book of Matthew, he focuses, Matthew focuses for us on the fact that Jesus is the ultimate king and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows. And that's partly why we find the Sermon on the Mount set up this way in Matthew's Gospel. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have a picture of Jesus putting his kingdom back together. Think back to the Old Testament reading from this morning. As John explained, what we have there in Exodus 19 is the creation of Israel as a nation. In that passage, God declared them to be a royal priesthood, and he claimed legal rights over them as the lawgiver and the king. So God created a nation by choosing 12 tribes, bringing them to Mount Sinai, telling them who they were, and giving them a law. That's what we have in Exodus 19. Now see what's happening here in the book of Matthew. We have Jesus choosing his 12, bringing them to a mountain, telling them who they are, and giving them a law. See, what's happening is that Jesus is declaring the establishment, the inauguration of the worldwide spiritual kingdom of God. And so when we get to our text, we see that Jesus is explaining what, it, what God's spiritual kingdom looks like as it spreads throughout the earth. It becomes clear for us that Jesus is sending us out as bright lights so that wherever his followers go, his spiritual kingdom will stand out in a world that is covered with sin and fallenness. But we can keep zooming out even further. Inside the story of the whole Bible, the concept of light has its own unique story. It's the first thing that God created. God tells us that he gave us light as a sign to distinguish between day and night, between the months, the seasons, and the years. Later on, God led his people through the wilderness as a fiery pillar of light. The Hebrews put lights in the temple, lampstands in the temple, to represent the presence of God. The prophets talked about Israel as a light to guide the rest of the world to Yahweh. The prophets and poets also talked about God's face, like an unapproachable light, similar to the light of the sun that's impossible to look at. Light was used as a metaphor for goodness, for hope, and for life itself. And so when you look at it all and you add it all up, you find that the Old Testament uses 
light as a comprehensive metaphor to illustrate the all-encompassing radiant goodness and glory of God. And so it's no wonder that when we get to the New Testament in John's Gospel, Jesus, the glorious Son of God, says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament lights, and he is the incarnate revelation of God's glory and goodness. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, tells us that when God saves us, what happens is that Jesus, the light, shines his glory into our hearts and a transformation takes place. And so now, we arrive at the unique part of the story when Jesus looks at his followers and says, you are the light of the world. Jesus says to his followers, says to us, now you represent the radiant goodness and glory of God. And so we cannot overlook in this passage the grace of God that precedes the command of God. God is not calling us to do something that he has not provided for. Part of this passage is not only the command to shine, but also the good news that Jesus has defeated the darkness of your heart and has transformed you and now sends you as his light. The fact is we just are the light of the world and we just do shine God's glory because God has created us into a new creation. We are walking new creations that God is transforming more and more every day into the image of his radiant, glorious likeness. Think back to the sermon two weeks ago that Eric preached, titled, Having Been Clothed, Clothe Yourselves. That same idea is present in this text. Having been made a light, let your light shine. See, shining our lights is not just something extra we can do as Christians to earn our evangelistic merit badges. It's just part of who God made us. And so, perhaps an apathy towards our calling is bound up with a dissatisfaction with our identity in Christ. Maybe, in other words, we don't want to stand out in a dark world because we prefer the identity that that dark world gives us. Maybe that's the message that some of us need to hear this morning, that God has redeemed you from all of the lies of darkness that you see and hear in the world around you every day. Middle and high schoolers, I get to call you out. (laughs) Jesus died. Jesus died to redeem you from culture's lie that your value comes from looking and sounding like everybody else. Or from the lie that teenage years are lazy years. In fact, I would argue that it's often the young people who can shine the brightest. God has redeemed his people out of darkness And given us a new identity. And part of that identity is that we have the pleasure of giving the world a glimpse at what a heavenly kingdom looks like. 
so we are not to conceal the truth of what we know or the truth of who we are. We are not to pretend that we don't belong to a spiritual kingdom. Rather, Jesus, our King, wants us to intentionally be who we are. Not to settle for some lesser identity that the world has created for us. God has called us to be the lights of the world. He has transformed us to be the beacons of God's perfect goodness. So why would we stoop to be anything less than that? It is good news, Christian, that Jesus has made us the light of the world. That is who we are. So now let's turn to consider and ask the question, how? How does Jesus expect us to be lighting up the world? I think there are two primary ways that we act as the light in the way that Jesus means it here. One positive, one stated negatively. They're really just two sides of the same coin. First, stated positively, we are lights in that we display God's goodness through our good works. We display God's goodness through our good works. As we mentioned, light in the Bible is a comprehensive metaphor for the radiance of God's glory. And so that we are lights in this sense means that we are beacons of that glory, of God's glory. And so it's worth mentioning here that this text is also talking about more than evangelism. Being a light does not equal sharing the gospel with words, but it is not less than that. If we are intentional about shining our lights, we most certainly will use our words. But being, though being a light does include evangelism, it is much more than that. Jesus actually tells us exactly what it means in verse 16. We shine as lights when our good works are on display for men to see. Now there is no doubt that Jesus has all of our good works in mind. But we can think primarily of the things that Jesus has just taught us in the Beatitudes and the things he is about to tell us in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So as we've mentioned then, we can say that the whole Sermon on the Mount is a description of how God's people are to stand out as the salt and light of the world. If you read through this most famous sermon in history, you will quickly discover that it is about living and making choices that make little of ourselves and much of God. And that's why the sermon is also perhaps the most difficult sermon in all of history to apply to our lives. Jesus, the perfect preacher, leaves no room for compromise. It is a shocking and a radical sermon that has gone against the prideful expectations of every culture and every time period since it was given. In other words, it is these radically different, righteous hungering, cross-shaped, Christ-imitating, self-denying choices that strike our dark world as being so strange, so peculiar, that one could say that they shine. To look like Christ is to represent his radiant, worthy, joy-inducing, glorious character. And so first, to be a light means that we display Christ and his characteristics on the stage of our lives. Our good works are beacons of God's perfect goodness. 
And God's goodness stands out in our world that has its own twisted ideas of what good is. And so we've come to the other side of the coin then. The second way in which we are lights is that we expose the deeds of darkness. We expose the deeds of darkness. Listen to Paul's language in Ephesians 5. Walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We are called to do the work of exposure by doing works that are good. And our good works take on this function simply because in our fallen world, goodness looks strange. It looks abnormal in a, in a world that likes to think of sin as being normal and okay. And so we are called to stand out in contrast. We can all recall memories of feeling exposed when we meet someone who is just incredibly meek or pure or someone who seems to hunger after righteousness with everything they have. Moments like that have an effect on us, don't they? They make us acutely aware all of a sudden of our own pride or lust or greed or complacency. Just having a conversation with somebody can force you to take a hard look at yourself. Maybe you've been spurred on towards repentance from moments like that. Maybe you've been driven to become more like Christ. Or maybe you've just been frustrated or embarrassed. Maybe you've even experienced falling more in love with somebody because their goodness or purity stood out to you. Jesus uses his church to affect the world this way. He uses us as the avenue, as the means by which he brings about the exposure of darkness and presents men with what true goodness looks like. He sends us to shine forth his glory in part in order to convict men of their sin and guilt and convince them of their need for God's kind of goodness. Nothing is more basic to our sinful human nature than our desire to justify ourselves or to build ourselves up or to seek our own glory. These are just the standard operating procedures for sin. And nothing is more threatening to these standard operating procedures than the presence of disciples who humble themselves in whose spiritual DNA is an obsession with God's good glory rather than their own. Nothing, nothing is more threatening to a world of sin than the character of Christ showing up in the lives of his disciples. However, we have no control or power over how men will respond when they are confronted by seeing Christ in us. And as we all know, being convicted of one's guilt does not always lead sinful men to repentance. And when it doesn't, it often leads to anger. And so just a few verses earlier, Jesus has the foresight to encourage us and say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. To be a light of the world 
means shining forth God's goodness by looking as self-sacrificing and God-exalting as Jesus did, even in the face of suffering. And there is just no way to do that without exposing the deeds of darkness. In other words, wherever the church goes, it brings the world into the daylight and makes visible both the path of righteousness in Jesus and the embarrassing hopelessness of men. When the lights come on, so to speak, men become aware of their spiritual nakedness. So having looked at who we are as the light and how we are to be the light, we now have to think about the transition that needs to take place in our own hearts. Our identity as the God-glorifying, sin-exposing lights of the world means that this is not our mission if we choose to accept it. It just is our calling to intentionally shine forth God's goodness as members of his kingdom. There is a contradiction, if you will, a sort of absurdity that takes place when we recognize that we are the light, but then act otherwise. There is a contradiction when God at once gives us an identity, seals us with an identity, and yet we act like it's not true of us. And this is the absurdity that Jesus highlights with the two analogies in our text. We can imagine a city full of light that sits high on a hill or a mountain and wherever you are in the villages or the lowlands around it, you can always see the city, especially at night. There's no way to cover up the city. There's no way to conceal it. The only way to hide it would be to destroy it. Or you can imagine or ask, what good is it for a lamp or a candle to be lit in a dark room if you then take a bowl or basket and cover it up? It's pointless. And as Jesus says, nobody would do that. Covering up a light means preventing it from doing what it was made to do. So it is no less absurd for us to shrink back from what we were made to do. So why, we might ask, is it so easy and so often that we choose to look like the world instead of shining a light into it? Maybe we don't intentionally shine our light because it looks more comfortable to conform to the world. Or we allow ourselves to think that it's easier to live in such a way that we won't rebel both with the world. In any case, we are just embarrassed at the thought of living a peculiar kind of life. And so it's so common for us to feel that it's counterintuitive to be countercultural. And so we feel a tension between our sinful intuition and the calling that God has given us. We need to address and not ignore what is going on in our hearts when we shrink from our calling. When we shrink from our calling, our hearts tell us that if we can just make the world think that we aren't strange, we can protect our reputation. And that's just the basic intuition of the old man, of our sinful nature. 
In other words, our sinful reason for not letting our light shine is the protection of our own glory. But look at verse 16. Jesus' reasoning is exactly the opposite. The reason, he says, we shine forth God's goodness and expose the deeds of darkness by doing good works is that through them, other men will glorify not us, but our Father in heaven. To be countercultural is counterintuitive unless, unless by faith we treasure Jesus more than ourselves, more than anything. That is how we close the gap, so to speak, between who God says we are and what he has called us to do, making the real heart decision to love Jesus more than anything. That's the only way we could ever obey any of the commandments Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Asking how we can be a light to our community requires first answering that deeper question. Is the desire of our heart to make famous the goodness of our king or to protect our own reputation by looking and acting like the world does in the dark? Why would we want to look like what Jesus has saved us from? That is another absurdity. Rather, if we treasure Jesus and all that he has saved us for and all that he has saved us to, then let's not keep it to ourselves, but share it with the world, with our communities, with the ones we love. And so before we conclude, let's think about that. How might Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, intentionally work out her identity? How can we faithfully wield our lampstand? Jesus' analogy of a city on a hill is not too far off from our own situation here at Christ the King. This building is not exactly inconspicuous. We are literally on top of a hill. Anybody who lives in Conshohocken or just drives up Fayette Street knows that we're here. You can see our steeple from 476. I've talked to my barber and ambler, my mechanic in Glenside, about where I go to church or where I'm working this summer. And they go, oh yeah, I know that church. It's the one with the big red doors. People know that we're here. This building has stood on this corner for over a hundred years as one of the most recognizable symbols of Christianity in Conshohocken. I looked it up and found that living in this little borough, there are 8,000 people. Consider that. This building is one of the most prominent visual reminders of God or faith or Christianity for 8,000 people every single day. That's 8,000 people within walking distance of our doorstep. But our light does not reach those 8,000 souls if we keep it contained inside these walls. 
that's not even to mention the sphere of influence that each of us have as individuals in our communities, workplaces, neighborhoods. So the very least we can do to respond to Jesus today is just to take some time and think. Think about what outreaches, what ministries, or evangelistic opportunities you can help develop in our church so that we can be an intentionally shining church. That is a perfect topic of conversation for lunch today. And certainly we need to add that Jesus wants men to glorify our Father, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And so if men are going to come to a true and saving faith, if they are going to worship with us in heaven, then eventually we are going to have to use our words. There are a lot of things that we can do to make the community thankful that we are here. We can provide Thanksgiving dinners or Christmas presents to families that are less fortunate. We can be willing to sacrifice our time and resources for others. These are excellent things. They are excellent and they give us a platform and they create connections. But if we want our community to worship with us inside these walls, if we want to glorify the Father with them forever in eternity, then we have to make the move from showing to telling. We have to speak the good news too. Maybe we could do that by inviting them to church where they'll hear the gospel. Maybe we could even do that through literature. We could invite someone to a Bible study. But again, we also need to be sure that just handing out invitations is not another way for us to avoid having to tell people that we believe Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our King. People of God, Jesus has redeemed us. He has transformed us to be a community that does not hide, but seeks to be seen and heard so that God can be seen and worshipped. Our King has given us a lampstand. He is sending us into our community, to our workplaces, to our families, to our neighborhoods, to shine his glory through our lives, to put on display that Jesus is the greatest treasure. So let's not shrink back from the task, from our identity, but intentionally live as members of his kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, you have sealed us and promised to us and named us by giving us the name Christian, by bringing us into your kingdom. And Lord, your kingdom is so radiant and glorious that it cannot remain hidden. We ask that you would stir our hearts to recognize the kingdom to which we belong. To recognize the glory 
in your son, which causes us to worship, which drew us in at one point or another to a saving faith. May we ask that you would cause us then to be stirred up to reach our community so that they may taste and see and savor your glory and the joy of belonging to your glorious kingdom. We thank you for these good words and for your promises in Christ. We pray and ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.